Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Quoting now from the Migration Policy Institute, over the decades, several million Central American migrants have sought opportunity, refuge, and stability in the United States, driven by a mix of factors, including battered economies, violence, corrupt governments, and the desire to reunite with relatives who immigrated earlier or to find a family-sustaining job. While media attention in recent years has focused on the arrival of unaccompanied minors and families, primarily from El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras, the lion's share of the 3.8 million Central American immigrants in the United States, as of 2019, have been in the country for at least a decade. Uh, this time on Access Utah, we're talking with uh, a couple of experts in this about the root causes of migration uh, from Central America, the uh, immigrant journey, and the integration of immigrants into the United States. And we welcome in uh, Suyapa Portillo, who is Associate Professor of Chicana, Chicano Latina, Latino Transnational Studies at Fitzer College, and a member of the Intercollegiate Department of Chicano, Chicano Latina, Latino Studies at Claremont Colleges. And uh, welcome to the program, Professor Portillo. Thank you for having me. Appreciate you being with us. Uh, we also have with us Esther Trujillo, who is an interdisciplinary scholar of Central American Immigration Integration and uh, Chicana, Chicano Studies. She's assistant professor in Department of Latin American and Latino Studies at DePaul University in Chicago. Welcome, Professor Trujillo. Hi, Tom. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, let me uh, just start with Professor Portillo. Um, just tell me a little bit about yourself and, and uh, a little bit of an overview of your, your work. Yeah, well, I'm a historian, and I focus on um, both Latin American and Central American history, as well as contemporary uh, social movements in uh, Central America and among Central Americans in the U.S. Uh, my recent book, Roots of Resistance, published by University of Texas Press, really focuses on the history of um, Honduran worker organizing and the radical tradition in the north coast of Honduras. Um and while doing that work, I came across um, a lot of organizing that was happening, or what people call the resistance movement in Honduras post the 2009 coup, um, and have been focused a lot on my second project, which is going to be about that resistance and including sort of how that extends outside of the Honduran borders into the United States in what people call Departamento de Sinueve in Honduran immigrants outside of the U.S., not just in the United States, but also Canada and Spain, uh, who are participating in the um, sort of transformation of Honduras, uh, as, as they like to call it. So, so that's kind of what I do. I also focus a lot on the LGBT community, particularly in Honduras, because of the extreme levels of violence that has been occurring during the Juan Orlando Hernandez administration, but really since the coup d'etat. I don't know if that's <laughs> no, but, yeah. Thank um, you. Yeah, that's uh, that's excellent. We'll and we'll come back to some of those points that you raised there, um, Professor Trujillo. Same to you. Uh, a little bit about your background and your scope of your work. Sure. My um, mother is an immigrant from El Salvador. She left in the 1980s during the Civil War there, and a lot of that personal history has really fueled the questions that I ask as a scholar. I primarily work on research, which investigates the ethnic and racial identity formations of U.S.-born Salvadorans. The way that I examine those identities really relies on the context of their family's migration, 
um, which for this population was civil war. And so what I look at in my forthcoming book, Becoming Salvi, Crafting Ethnic Identity in the Salvadoran Diaspora, um, which is forthcoming from the University of Arizona Press, is on the ways that coming from war affects the ways that immigrant youth are able to identify their social location in the United States um, racially and in regards to their ethnicity as well. Excellent. And we'll uh, revisit some of those themes as well. Let me return to Professor Portillo. Um, there's a big election recently in Honduras, big change. Um, I don't know if the new the president-elect has been inaugurated, but uh, tell us a little bit about that election and what it, what it means. <clears throat> sure, yeah, the Honduran elections are really important because um, it really, uh, uh, by putting uh, the new uh, Libertad and Refundacion party in power, it changes 12 years of policy since the 2009 coup. Um, the 2009 coup, which was executed under the supervision of um, Hillary Clinton and the Barack Obama administration, right, the first coup in the 21st century, uh, it was a violent coup. There were over 4,000 human rights, um, civil rights violations and about 2,000 human rights violations just in the execution of the coup. Yet the administration at the time uh, didn't want to admit that it was a coup, right? So what that did is it launched all these other problems in the country, including um, corruption, including uh, sort of room for narco-trafficking to flourish under the Nationalist Party at the time. Um, and of course, in 2011, we began to see a rise in migration from Honduras when Exodus, although most people clock it in 2018, really we began to see it in 2011, which was one of the most violent years um, in, in, in the, at, since the coup, right, since 2009. Um, <clears throat> numbers that increased and then led to the dramatic events of 2018, as you saw the caravans. Um, so by the by, by this party taking over, it signifies a change in administration, in the way that things are going to be run. She has proposed, um, uh, uh, you know, a, a democratic socialist uh, agenda, uh, a very clear sort of uh, agenda on women's rights and women's rights to choose, as well as LGBTI rights, um, and, you know, other things like restoring some of the national, um, you know, some of the losses, right, um, in the nation. Again, she's going to inherit a broken country, right? So the reason these elections are so important is because it reverts a lot of what the coup um, created, hopefully. Um, one of the most important things, I think, is the proposal to rewrite the Constitution, right, to have a constitutional assembly. And I think that that's why... Her husband, Manuel Zelaya Rosales, was ousted in the first place. But we also saw the Nationalist Party edit the Constitution and, you know, uh, mess with it, if you will, right, uh, in many different ways. One of them is, for example, um, uh, in writing into the Constitution as a, a rock amendment the fact that uh, abortion is illegal or gay marriage, for instance, um, uh, the re-election of Juan Orlando Hernandez, right, the, the nationalist president, all those things, you know, were 
<clears throat> not amendable before, right? The Constitution was written in 1982 during Reagan, precisely during what Professor Trujillo was talking about during the, you know, the the wars that were taking place in Guatemala and El Salvador. And so in Honduras, uh, Reagan found allies among the military <clears throat> juntas and was able to draft a constitution that uh, is not usable in contemporary modern times by Hondurans, right? This constitution is, you know, uh, antique, if you will, right? There's no way for people to uh, make amendments, for the for the population to engage um, in any way in retracting, you know, um, officials that had been, corrupt officials that had been in power for years, kind of living off the system. And there's really no representation, you know, of indigenous and Afro-indigenous people in the Constitution. Um, you know, there was no way to protect ancestral lands, uh, to respect sort of um, history, if you will, right? So the Constitution itself uh, does need um, <clears throat> to be rewritten, and I think that's one of the biggest promises uh, that the Simara Castro Sarmiento Celaya uh, government has proposed. So very exciting moment, I think, for Honduras, because Honduras didn't live through the Civil War period uh, in the same, same way. There was still Civil War, there were still disappearances, there were still armed movements that sort of didn't make it to national organized movements as they did in El Salvador, Nicaragua, or Guatemala, um, <clears throat> right? But there was a very strong hold of U.S. foreign uh, <clears throat> operatives there. I mean, you know, and, and because of the United Fruit Company and the history of, um, you know, the history of sort of U.S. reach in the region, uh, Honduras had been sort of, you know, and what I call, you know, most people talk about it as the Cold War, and I call the anti-communist movement in Central America, right, um, had really sort of stopped progress and any potential development because, the country was under military junta rule from 1963 to the early 80s. Let me turn to uh, Professor Trujillo and, and uh, talk about, I'll turn to Professor Portillo as well in, in general on this. But um, what we hear is the reason, you know, uh, people leave Central America and then try to get to the U.S. Uh, various reasons, of course, right? Economic instability, violence. Um, what, uh, in your view and from your studies, what, uh, what are the range of reasons? What we have coming out of mostly the, the, the three nations that, you know, we're really talking about today, Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador, is a trifecta of problems. You have social, political, and economic. So... Professor Portillo makes a really good point in identifying the specific history of Honduras because it is so different from the specific histories of what happened in Guatemala and in El Salvador, right? And so one of the, the issues I think we have in the U.S. with understanding how or why it is that people leave is that we tend to imagine the region as this geopolitical blur, um, even in our policy, you know, the recent presidential administrations have referred to the region as the Northern Triangle. And what that does is that it really blurs the specific politics, the specific social issues in each region. It makes us forget about the specific histories of the three nations. Each nation has its own history. It has its own relationship with the United States. 
it has its very specific relationships with each other, right? And of course, there's histories of that of colonization that go back centuries that set up the situations there um, in, in present day. Um, in El Salvador, for instance, there are many reasons why people leave, but the mass migrations to the U.S. that started in the 80s sprung out of civilians trying to leave when violence was surrounding them. And they felt as if though there was no recourse. So there were reasons for personal safety. There were also reasons that had to do with um, doubts or rather hopelessness about their access to viable economic participation. Um, Because the war did break down a lot of the systems that people would expect would lead them to a better life. Um, For example, folks who were attending universities realized that the university professors were being attacked, and so many of the people who were enrolled in universities had to stop their studies or had to leave the country and continue their studies elsewhere. And so in El Salvador in particular, um, folks refer to this moment and these people who fled during the war as the lost generation. So if you come forward in time to where we are now, um, there still remains this kind of doubt about how people will be integrated into economic participation domestically. Um, And for a lot of people, um, as early as, I believe, as early as eighth grade, Right. There, some social scientists surveyed folks in, in different nations in Central America and found that youth as early as eighth grade had plans to exit the country, which means that from a very young age, kids realize that it's going to be very difficult to integrate economically. There are also a range of gendered threats toward young women, um, toward children, uh, there are systems of racketeering um, organizations in El Salvador that request money from business owners and from people who appear to have the means. And when those people do not pay these organizations their monthly rent or their monthly request, then they're threatened with violence. And usually that violence isn't threatened towards them, but their children. And so this is one of the reasons why we've seen children um, exiting the nation and then arriving at the U.S. border without a guardian. Let me uh, point the same question to uh, Professor Portillo. Uh, what, what are the range of reasons why, why folks leave, uh, try to, to take this, right. this journey, often a dangerous journey? Yeah. Um, well, you know, I'm a historian, so I always go back 200, 300 years, and I think um, the reach of the United States in the region, both Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala, and Nicaragua, um, for export economies and the drawing out of uh, raw resources, right? So, for example, coffee, the exploitation of coffee as a trade, <clears throat> you know, El Salvador's connection to San Francisco and some of the instant coffee companies, right? The banana companies, such as, um, you know, now Chiquita Brands and Dole Foods, right? These companies have been, and previously United Fruit Company and Sander Fruit in Guatemala and Honduras have been, and as well as, as the coffee, the development of sort of the, the high-end coffee industry from Antigua, for instance. And 
all of these industries that developed, you know, 150 years ago, 200 years ago, um, have been creating um, dependency, right? So all of these countries' entire economic um, systems have been dependent on the export of this one uh, monocrop, you know, uh, all this t- all this time, right? For over 150 years, 200 years, until uh, migration replaced that, right? Um, what that does, we think about it in general terms, but what that does locally is it creates um, a system of exploitation within the country, such as, for example, Guatemala, the finca structure, right, where large haciendas, you know, um, employed, uh, you know, poor indigenous folks for years, uh, exploitative wages, you know, forcing people to work, um, internal migration systems, right? Um, look at El Salvador, right? El Salvadorans have been migrating for hundreds of years, you know, uh, maybe not to the United States, but to other regions to work in the banana industry, to work in the coffee industry, so that um, that economic system doesn't allow for proper development, right? It's an interrupted development over history. Um, there is no development of a middle class, for instance, right? So you see extreme poverty. Adding to that, what Professor Trujillo mentioned, right, war. When you add war, you know, and intervention, such as U.S. intervention, you know, at one point there were 50 CIA agents in Guatemala, overseeing what's going on in the war, right? You know, this is a country of at the time of 8 or 9 million people in the 1980s, you know, with an extreme amount of um, military power from the United States and the Reagan administration, uh, but, but other administrations as well, right? When you see, you know, um, the Eisenhower administration in the mid-50s during the coup in 1954 in, in Guatemala, which was devastating to progressive uh, potential and movement and development, right? When you have authoritarian rule, military rule, you don't see development. You don't see gender development. You don't see policies that affect uh, women. You don't see any kind of, um, you know, union movements that might, uh, you know, ameliorate some of the labor issues at the time. So I, for me, that's how I look at it, right? This is a long long, this is, it took a long time into making this. So we tend to focus on the 1980s, we tend to focus on, you know, the 1990s and the hurricanes, but those are all results of this very inequitable system that was set up over years through this capitalist exploitation system. When you add war in the 70s and 80s in the region and military um, incursion, that creates, exacerbates the system, right? Um, if you think about what's going on in the Middle East now, after 20, 25 years of war, and what's going to happen in the next 20, 20 years, you know, it's, we, you know, what happened in Vietnam and Asia during the Vietnam War, these are the kinds of results you're going to see in Central America where you have devastated economies, right? You have uh, extreme powerful military rulers, military juntas, military men, right? These sort of caudillos that emerge as leaders uh, are problematic, right? And, and I mean, I would even consider Nayib Bukele one of those, or, you know, Juan Orlando Hernandez, you know, one, one of those sort of controversial figures that emerge because of this historical problem, right? And of which the United States is fundamentally really important, right? The role of the United States in this foreign policy in crafting and redrafting, um, you know, things like constitutions, uh, who who becomes president, how they become president, right? Um, So 
that's how I think about it, right? So that so that now the the chaos that you begin to see now makes sense, right? When you have military rulers in power for so long, that's that gives room to corruption, gives room to growth of narco trafficking, right? Because it's not a state. It's not a state that is running smoothly, right? They need military power to rule. And so that that heavy handedness of military power is what shifts um you know, what allows, you know, narco traffickers to rule because there is no state. So they create a different state, right? Um <clears throat> those are some of my analysis about what's going on now. So when we think about Rukasas, so I've been thinking a lot about Kamala Harris's visit to Guatemala and talking about Rukasas. You know, her introduction, for example, of the Nestle Corporation to Central America is pathetic to me because that's another United for Company, a company that's been accused of, you know, child labor abuses, that's been accused of, you know, all kinds of issues, right, um, all over the world in Africa and Asia. And to bring some of the same seems very, um, you know, historical, right, um, for the region. Other things I think that, you know, the lack of, for example, if you look at, you know, women gained the right to vote around the 1950s in most of Central America, and you haven't seen development of gender rights, you know, in in El Salvador because there was a protracted war, in Guatemala because you also had a protracted war, but you also had this intense um, sort of division between Latinos and Mayan indigenous folks, right, in the ways that um, some of these policies were enacted. For example, the first women to vote in the 1950s were literate women, and that meant that over half of the population in many of these countries would not be able to participate in suffrage, right, that we haven't had an equi- equitable suffrage. This is one example, right, of, of many that we can say, but also, um, you know, gender rights to uh, uh, contraception, for instance, right, or rights to medical care, um, things like that, you know, um, you know, for a very long time up until the 80s, in many of these countries, when women got divorced, um, the father got to decide what happened to the children, you know. Um, so all of these, you know, military juntas and military and war and intervention doesn't allow for the creation of policies that are human-centered policies, right, that are uh, gender-focused in any way. So we cre- we get to this place now that we're in, you know, and, uh, and underdeveloped countries with uh, few public policies that actually address people's issues that, you know, very few, um, you know, and, and, and an economy that's completely dependent outside of the country, right, on either these agro-export um, situations or, um, and now migrants, migrant remittances, right? In the 90s, we saw, you know, the GDPs of Honduras and El Salvador be completely dependent on migrant remittances. That's not development. That's that's generated by capitalist interests, by war interests, you know? So it's almost, you know, um, a contradiction to talk about, for Kamala Harris to talk about root causes, right? when in reality, we really need to see the role of the United States in in this region. Not to take agency away from Central American countries, right, and from, you know, the movements that emerged that wanted to change the situation, right? Um, But I think that when we talk about migration, we divorce it from foreign policy. And we can't do that anymore because it is intrinsically linked to foreign policy. And that's 
some of the things that I'm kind of writing and thinking about now, right, that we talk about immigration, especially in the U.S., as a domestic issue, when really is a transnational foreign policy issue and should be things that are negotiated among nations, um, you know, given the history and, and given what's going on. What do you do now that you have narco-trafficking, that you have proliferation of all kinds of corruption at all levels? How do you begin to change uh, a country? How do you get regular human beings to trust entities of the, the government? For example, I just saw data on Honduras, 77% of the people who experience some sort of uh, violence or crime or assault on the street will not report it to the police because they don't trust the police. They find the police worse than the perpetrators that assaulted them. So how do you, you know, I think that those are the challenges that are coming up for the 21st century, right? How do you redirect um, policies internally? And, you know, one of my favorite um, thinkers in, in Honduras, um, a Jesuit priest uh, by the name of Father Ismael Moreno, you know, said... <clears throat> He's confident that the that the countries themselves, each of the Central American countries, know what the solution is for themselves and need to work on that solution internally. That Central Americans need to stop looking to the United States or to foreign powers um, for help, right? And so that, that shift um, has to happen in each nation, right? Um, because otherwise there's not going to be any internal solutions, right? It's It's a question of... Yes, money and investment and jobs and economy and that that's realistic, but it's also a shift. I mean, these countries have been colonized by the United States for, you know, since independence from Spain in 1821, possibly, right? So how do we reshift um, how Hondurans, Salvadorans, Guatemalans, Nicaraguans think about their own country and redirect policy internally and figure out solutions? Uh, for example, instead of police, can there be a community police option? You know, um, can a community police system uh, replace uh, the crooked police that exists now, right? Because, you know, maybe it can't be, right, uh, something that, that can be done institutionally. Um, in terms of healthcare, there's no money, but can there be communal um, health centers in, in the community? I mean, it sounds really sort of utopian, right? But this is what is left, because of all the devastation uh, from hundreds and hundreds of years, but also the imagination of the people, right? How people imagine what they can do with very few resources. Um, will people still migrate to the U.S.? Yes. This is not just a Central American problem. People are migrating all over the, U the south of the world, right? The, the southern world. If you look at Africa, if you look at Asia, if you look at Latin America, you know, this is a dynamic that's happening. Everybody's on the move. So, you know, it's not just an issue that needs to be resolved in Central America. It's an issue that needs to be thought of from an analysis of capitalist society and how they've exploited uh, the, the southern part of the world, all over the world. Let me, uh, before we go to a break, we're overdue for a break. Uh, I want to go to uh, Professor Trujillo. And anything you'd like to say in reaction to what uh, Professor Portillo said or uh, on this idea of, uh, you know, root causes and some of the history? Professor Portillo did such a comprehensive job. I think it would be useful for us to start thinking about what are some of the foreign policy decisions that the U.S. has made and continues to make. Um, maybe that's something that we can talk about. 
Excellent. Uh, let's take a break. We'll come back. We'll talk about that. And I want to talk about the, the immigrant journey as well and, and who these folks are. Uh, talk about uh, talk about that. And um, and uh, in our final segment, we'll talk about uh, integration of immigrants into the United States. Uh, we'll have more following a break. We're talking with uh, Suyapo Portillo. She's associate professor of uh, Chicana, Chicano, Latino, Latino Transnational Studies at Pitzer College and a member of the Intercollegiate Department of uh, Chicano, Chicano, Latino, Latina Studies at Claremont Colleges. Esther Trujillo is an interdisciplinary scholar of Central American Immigrant uh, Integration and uh, Chicano, Chicano Studies. She's assistant professor in the Department of Latin American and Latino Studies at DePaul University in Chicago. More following this. This is Science by the Slice. In 1960, as the Cold War heated up, the U.S. Army launched Project Iceworm. The top-secret effort was aimed at building a network of mobile nuclear launch sites under the Greenland Ice Sheet. Hampered by blizzards and unstable ice conditions, the project, located at Camp Century, was canceled in 1966. A 1.3-kilometer-long ice core was extracted from the site and, until recently, was largely forgotten. USU geoscientist Tammy Rittenauer is among experts tapped to analyze the unusual sample, which is providing clues about the Earth's warming climate. Rittenauer says data from the sample reveals the Greenland ice sheet may be more sensitive to climate change than previously thought. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in the sciences and mathematics. Details at usu.edu science. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. We are talking about uh, root causes of immigration from Central America, the immigrant journey and integration of immigrants into the United States. And we're talking with Pitzer College Professor Suyapo Portillo and DePaul University Professor Esther Trujillo. Um, I want to start with uh, Professor Trujillo on this. You referenced before the break, Professor Trujillo, uh, maybe we should follow up and talk a little bit more about um, foreign policy, U.S. foreign policy, and and how that's uh, affecting this problem. Uh, go ahead and uh, and uh, do that now. Absolutely. Uh, a lot of people in the U.S. are familiar with the Monroe Doctrine because we're taught it in elementary school, and right? this is the United States' general foreign policy attitude toward Latin America. Um, uh, which was expressed to Congress by James Monroe um, in the 1800s. And this attitude was one that said, Europe, get out of our backyard. From now on, any European power that meddles in the Americas will have to confront the U.S. Right? And so you get this general attitude in which the U.S. views itself as almost a paternal figure to the rest of Latin America, this is where we get the phrasing of Latin America as our backyard, right, as being in close proximity to any issues that may arise throughout the continent. And so what this creates is this feeling of whatever raw goods are coming out of Central America, Latin America, and the Caribbean um, begin to be sort of processed through U.S. corporate interests. The United States has these policies that, as Professor Portillo mentioned, seem to be domestic issues, but that enforce the ways that corporate interests 
um, and political interests are then able to intervene in other nations. For example, there's an early um, this early practice of providing U.S. government subsidies to corporations seeking to invest in Latin America as well as other nations. And what this leads to is uh, to states that are in development following their independence in Latin America to then come to rely on U.S. corporate interests for the development of their infrastructure. So I'm sure that Professor Portillo could explain this in much more detail than I could um, because of that historical expertise that she has. But what this, what this essentially leads to is the dependency of foreign development in uh, Central American nation states. This also happens in Mexico, by the way. Um, and so if you look, if you, again, fast forward, the investments don't look the same, but they have the same function. Um, and in the 1990s, there begins to be another wave of domestic policies in the U.S. that purport to be about crime. So there are some conservative governments in the United States um, uh, or administrations that prioritize criminal prosecution um, of immigrants. And this led to the reforms, immigration reforms of 1996, in which immigrants who were found to have violated a certain number of, of, of you know, low infractions, kind of laws, uh, misdemeanors, were processed for deportation if they were found to be in the U.S. without legal authorization. And so these deportations led to the exit of a lot of young folks who maybe or maybe had not been involved in organized crime or gangs in the U.S. to then be deported into Central America. What this did was that it created a culture of exporting the U.S.'s criminal issue into Latin America. Um, increase in criminal enforcement caused these, really they were unorganized street gangs to then be in close proximity in spaces of detention, right, in the U.S. as they're being deported, and then in El Salvador or Guatemala, Honduras, as they arrive um, and begin to to figure out what they're going to do there now. And so they begin to be in close proximity. They're able to organize themselves. And they're able to become into a franchises of sorts in which their primary income is extortion, racketeering, drug trafficking. And so in many ways, a lot of Central American studies scholars have found that U.S. deportation policies in 1996 um, led to the creation of organized gangs like the MS-13 or the 18th Street Gang. Um, and others like them, right? Whereas previously they were unorganized, deportation process and the incarceration process created opportunities for them to become organized. And so um, I think the Trump administration's favorite um, soundbite during addresses to Congress was to point out the criminal element of MS-13, which is certainly a concern, but it's only one example it's not the end-all, be-all of um, immigration policy, um, and really there is no reference to the U.S.'s role in creating that circumstance of violence that we now see 
caused by these organized groups, um, there is no um, uh, solution that's presented right, either by U.S. governments or by um, the governments of those nations in Central America themselves. And so that is one example of the ways that U.S. foreign policy and immigration reform leads to the social conditions of crime in Central America. In addition to that, we also have today these policies about what to do with um, youth who are arriving at the border. And so a lot of folks don't know this, but the uh, Department of Homeland Security has a policy where it's Mexican unaccompanied youth or Canadian, right, uh, youth that arrive from contiguous nations. Those are nations that are bordering the U.S. If youth arrive from those nations, they're immediately processed for deportation. They're not detained. If children arrive from non-contiguous nations, which includes every country other than Mexico and, Can- and Canada, um, those children are held, right? And this is under... Um, a policy that was created in 2008 um, that has to do with the rights of trafficked minors, right? So we're talking about human trafficking here. Because of this policy, the U.S. Border Patrol detains and holds Central American youth, um, and it does not hold um, youth from Mexico for as long of a period. And so this is an example of U.S kind of attitudes about which children deserve to, or or whether children deserve to be safe, um, translated into um, how we think of what it takes to return a child home, right? So it's built to to give protection to children, um, but it also has policies toward different nations that we're not aware of. And so in many ways, the crisis that's constructed around the idea of the Central American and accompanied youth migration is really um, a result of the policy and how we treat those youth. Um, I'm sure that if the U.S. had a policy where we were detaining and holding Mexican children as well, that we would also have a Mexican immigrant youth crisis, right? But we don't detain them, or we don't hold them. So these are some examples of the ways that policy that foreign policy affects um folks yeah uh, I want to move uh, to our, our next uh, broad topic I'll start with Professor Portillo on this and that is the the immigrant journey uh, folks make that decision for many of the reasons we've been talking about um, so tell me briefly uh, Professor Portillo about about this this journey yeah, well, you know, um, <clears throat> it's interesting because I made that journey with my mother in the early 80s, um, coming to the United States, and I was actually a child migrant. I was detained with my mother. At the time, they were not separating mothers and children, although I'm sure that happened in some cases. Uh, I was able to stay with my mom in detention and uh, was released um, thanks to the sanctuary movement, and really I'm still in this country thanks to the sanctuary movement of that period which included a lot of Central American immigrants who housed us and fed us, uh, not just uh, sort of churches, right? Um, it's important to think that the sanctuary movement was really also built by immigrants from Central America themselves. Um, but the journey, and so I, I intimately remember that journey, 
but the journey has become way more um, difficult because of U.S. Uh, because the U.S. demands that Mexico detain people at the Guatemala-Mexico uh, border uh, and deport them from there, and has also imposed, the U.S. has imposed its immigration policy on Mexico and Guatemala against Central Americans and other folks who are migrating to Central America, such as Haitians, Haitians and, and Cubans and, and other folks, right? So, What's really interesting is that <clears throat> the peril that we faced in the 80s was real, right? And I can definitely remember moments of extreme danger. Um, but what people are facing now is absolutely out of this world, right? Level of violence against women. I mean, most young women can expect to be raped uh, during this journey. In fact, some women uh, migrate with contraception uh, because of this. Um, you know, the, the they not only have to confront Mexican uh, federal authorities, and Mexican police, right, oftentimes corrupt police, um, especially in southern Mexico where, you know, there has been over-militarization since the 1997 Zapatista revolt um, and, and takeover of San Cristobal de las Casas. That whole region has been militarized uh, precisely to, to counter indigenous uh, resistors, and that military didn't leave, right? So they're confronting the federales, as they cross over into Chiapas. Um, but they're also confronting organized crime, right? Mexico is sort of overrun by narco-trafficking, right? And in fact, some of the networks that you see in Central America are precisely Mexican networks, right? Especially in Honduras, for instance, of organized crime. So what you begin to see, right, it's extremely dangerous. The other thing is the train, right? The, this, the Vestia, you know, um, existed in the 80s because, you know, I have family members in the early 80s who rode the Vestia, the, the train, uh, through Mexico because they didn't have money to get on a bus or, you know, they didn't have a coyote or, you know, for whatever reason. So the Vestia is also not a new concept. It's the the way in which it is used now. Before it was a few men, you know, young men would jump on the train and, you know, cut through Mexico. Now you see women and children young people, right? The extreme violence <clears throat> that you see in this trajectory um, is is also structural in Mexico, right? Mexicans see Central Americans as a problem. They don't see them, they see them as people that are bringing problems to Mexico as well. So you have some towns that are not friendly, you have towns that are friendly, you know, you have people that exploit at every level, right? Um the precariousness that folks face, right? Um, the difficulty accessing humanitarian visas to traverse Mexico, right? Because you can't just, you know, go from the border to Mexico without having documentation and papers. And, you know, so people have applied, particularly LGBT folks and trans folks um, are, you know, and, and women and children are able to apply sometimes for humanitarian visas. If they're not able to get any of this, it doesn't mean people don't come anyway. And that's where it gets extremely dangerous, right? Because you then have to go through the black market, right, um, to to get yourself to to the border or to get yourself across the country. Um, you know, and then once you get to the border, then there's the racket of, you know, do people 
where do people go from there, and then facing the, the U.S. system. Now, I mean, I really like the, the way Esther framed what's going on with children, right, from Central America, because, you know, it's also happening with trans women and, and women, cisgender women as well, where if an LGBT person or a trans woman who's lived incredible violence, not just in their country of origin in Central America, but across Mexico, right, um, does not say everything they need to say at that moment when they talk to the Border Patrol agent and request asylum or request support from the U.S. If they don't say everything, you know, they could be, when they get into, when they're detained and they uh, seek, when and they get interviewed again, and they forgot something, they forgot to say something at the border and then they say it later, that could be used against them and say, you know, oftentimes people are considered to be lying or to not be telling the entire, entire truth. For trans women who have lived extreme trauma, you know, and one of the, the factors of trauma, right, in, in, for many in the community is that, you know, you compartmentalize some of this this violence, right? Like, um, you know, many folks may not remember things or may not want to say things in front of other people there's a myriad of reasons why people may forget to say certain things at the moment of capture, right? And, and that happened to us, you know, my mother and us, right? Like, you know, we were detained in the early 80s by a helicopter shining a light on us and telling us to get on our knees and guns pointed at us. You can imagine what that does to a child. I'm still traumatized from that experience, right? You know, and, and you forget it. You get nervous. You start to shake. You you know, there's a lot of stuff going on at that moment. And so when I think about what's going on with people at the border and the extreme violence they're facing, n- not that we're comparing, but, you know, the violence is significantly worse than, than the early 80s uh, for some of us that crossed that same border, um, you might forget to say something at, at the point of entry when you are declaring that you need asylum. And then when you bring it up later, then it can be considered a lie. The other thing that's really problematic is that crossing the border is now a felony, right? So people get, you know, if they're deported and come back again, then they have to face the felony charges, which automatically makes them an, an uh, you know, a, a, a felon and therefore deportable. I met so many people in Honduras in that situation, right? But there aren't any policies in the U.S. to provide any kind of support for Central Americans, particularly from our period, right, the early, the 80s and the late 70s. Uh, we were not allowed to file for asylum because at that time it wasn't something that, you know, our cases were not moving. There was no way that we would have gotten asylum um, because if Reagan admitted that we were coming from militarized governments or, you know, our families were being persecuted, then he would have to admit covert actions in Central America. He would have to admit his involvement in Iran-Contra affair. He would have to admit, you know, that he was sending a million dollars a day to El Salvador or uh, that, you know, indigenous leaders were being executed and murdered uh, daily almost in Guatemala, right? There were, you know, over 600 massacres, you know, of women, children, and and adults in, in Guatemala. So, they would have to admit all these things. And so therefore we were not seen because if we were to have been seen by the system, it would mean that the U.S. government would be implicated for crimes against humanity. You know, and Reagan died very peacefully without facing crimes against humanity, despite being sort of 
one of the worst, um, you know, one of the worst things that happened to Central America, right, the, the, as a U.S. president. So, right. um, and, and so I just feel like, you know, the journeys become more worse, right, because now we just don't have to face ICE or, at the time, Immigration Naturalization Service, Border Patrol, the Federales in Mexico, the corrupt police in Mexico. Now you're facing these extra, the cartels, right, the local gangs, you know, the train itself, the structure of the train itself. And, you know, you do have conductors in the train that will go slower uh, as a personal act of, of compassion, but you have others who don't care, who report immigrants, right? Um, and, and you know, this, this humanitarian visa the system is not working, you know, uh, for most people. So that's why they have to go through the black market. Well, let's, and then let's, you say, um, why, are, why are people doing this, right? And and you think about these historical reasons that we've been talking about. So, Well, thank you. Um, let me turn back to, uh, to Professor Trujillo. Uh, I'd like to end our discussion the last uh, three or four minutes we have uh, with integration. I know you study this uh, of, of immigrants to the to the U.S. I, I was uh, a piece you wrote that I was reading. Uh, you noted, for example, Los Angeles is now the second largest Salvadoran city by population in the world outside of San Salvador. At immigrate, you know, um, indication of of uh, you know a lot of uh, Central Americans um, in uh, some of these areas. And you mentioned um, that you, you study interge- intergenerational historical memory, um, and, you know, the folks that are here and the generations that follow, especially coming out of uh, out of trauma. I wonder if you've talked just a little bit about that. We have about three minutes left. Sure. Some of the things that folks generally don't realize about Central American populations are that we're very large, right? Um in fact, Guatemala and Nicaragua have presented two of the largest growing populations of Central Americans and Latinos overall in the U.S. from the 2010 census to the 2020 census. Right, We're seeing growth of 240 um, percent, for example, among the Guatemalan population um, here in Chicago, um, where I am right now. You know, we have almost one of every three Guatemalans who lives in the U.S. lives in the greater Chicago area, and people don't know this. Um, another kind of demographic point is that uh, in Washington, D.C., in the DMV area, the majority Latino population is not Mexican but Salvadoran. And so there are growing pockets of populations of Central Americans around the U.S., which really is going to shift the way that we talk about who Latinos in the U.S. are. Um, To your other point, Tom, about what happens to the generations of people who come after, right? There is this idea in the U.S. that children of immigrants will become American. And there's also a conversation that has sprouted about Latinos in particular, that they do not become as American as others. And I just want to push back on that and really um, suggest to listeners that we re- frame how we think about what it means to be an American in the U.S., right? There's a lot of us. There's a lot of us with different backgrounds. And some of us are people who come from these um, uh, generations, right? We're, We're the descendants of people who have been through severe violence, severe trauma, um, and we are still finding ways to contribute to society, 
um, to find our way professionally um, and to find our way um, into contributing to our, our political society in the U.S. and abroad in our ascending nations. We're good. We have uh, reached the uh, the end of our time here. Much more that we could say, but uh, been a very interesting discussion. We uh, uh, appreciate it very much. We've been talking with, right there, we talked with Esther Trujillo, who's an interdisciplinary scholar of Central American Immigration and Integration and in Ch- Chicano Chicano Studies, assistant professor in the Department of Latin American and Latino Studies at DePaul University in Chicago. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. And uh, thank you. And uh, Suyapo Portillo is associate professor in uh, Chicano, Chicano, Latina, Latino, uh, Transnational Studies at Pitzer College, a member of the Intercollegiate Department of uh, Chicano, Chicano, Latino, Latina Studies at Claremont Colleges. Uh, Professor Portillo, thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah today. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour, we'll travel to the remote and rocky islands of Cape Verde, 300 miles off the west coast of Africa, to hear enchanting mornas, funanas, and coladeras. I'm Rosalie Howarth. Join me for Cape Verde, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Thursday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, and UPR.org.